Hello there, welcome to May Fight Club. We are breaking down PFL number seven, which is part of the first round of the 2022 PFL playoffs coming up on Friday the 5th of August with a 6 p.m. Eastern start time. This event's being held in New York City, New York, in Madison Square Garden, the Mecca for fighting. 11 total bouts on the card, but a very unique card. You have the prelims, of course you have the main card, which is part of the playoffs, and then you have the post limbs. Very unique format. Last time I recall this happening was Bellator having an event earlier this year in Hawaii where they had post-liminary fights. I recall watching, I believe on Showtime, after the main card was over, the broadcast cut out and I could not watch the post-liminary fights. So I'm going to warn you, we will skim over some of these post-liminary fights. A few we know a little more than the others, but the point is, I just don't know what to offer you there. Some books are offering every fight in this card so far. There is one fight in the card right now that's not currently in the books. Actually, two fights because one had a late replacement. So we'll try to do the best we can to patch this together. This is being recorded on Sunday, very late in the evening, to air on Monday. So forgive us if they were out of order, if some things don't add up. But again, we have a unique format, prelim, main card, postlim, first round of the playoffs. In the main card, the playoff fights will be Anthony Pettis versus Stevie Ray as the main event. Amari Akhmedov versus Josh Silveria. And Silveria is a late replacement coming in for... Um, Junior, right? Our Antonio Carlos Jr. Yep, Antonio Carlos Jr. was supposed to be in this spot. He suffered an ACL tear, so in comes Silvera as a replacement, a 9-0 undefeated fighter against Mariak Medoff. We've also got Olivier Aubon Mercier against Alex Martinez. And then the last fight as part of the postseason is Rob Wilkinson, the former UFC fighter, versus Delon Monte, the newcomer here to the PFL. The prelims will consist of three bouts, and again, the post limbs will also be post after the main card, and that'll be four fights. Little long winded, I apologize, but that said, we'll give you each fight one fight at a time, our favorite pick to win, some betting implications, not as much discussion about prop bets because most books don't offer prop bets on PFL. And when they do, it's just so late in the week. So when you're going to go into prop bet hunting, you're on your own there. I apologize. With that said, guys, let's jump to the first fight in the card. Here we go. All right, the second fight, the premium card is going to be a light heavyweight bout at 205 pounds between the Norwegian fighter, Martine Hamlet, who's 9-4 overall, versus Corey Hendricks, the American fighter out of Washington State, who's also 9-4 overall. I love it when they pit fighters against each other. They have like the same exact record. Well, that's what we have right here. So Hendricks is 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here at plus 140, plus 130. I find that to be very interesting because these guys fought last year and Corey Hendricks defeated Martine Hamlet by a round three rear naked choke. For some reason right now, he's the underdog. We'll talk more about it. So Martin Hamlet is from Washington, 34 years old. I'm sorry, Martin. Corey Hendricks is from Washington, 34 years old, 6'3", and high with a 73-inch reach. He's out of Syndicate MMA. Very good gym. As for Martin Hamlet, also 9-4 overall, from Norway, 30 years old, a little bit younger. You'd think of him as being like the same age or if not older looking for some reason. Even the profile pictures here, Corey comes off of a little bit younger, but he is 34, 4 years older. So the age advantage, I think, would be on the side of Martin Hamlet. Though we are still talking about big boys, they're in their prime years, right? So for Martin Hamlet, he's six foot one, two inches shorter than Corey Hendricks, and he's got a 75-inch reach, a two-inch reach advantage, and he's at a frontline academy. According to the numbers on Tapology, it appears that Hendricks is the big favorite, getting 82% of the votes, only 18% coming in for Hamlet. Which begs to ask the question: How is the money line favored? How, how is the money line, yeah, favored towards Hamlet when the public general vote here on Tapology is already on the side of Hendricks? So I'm not really sure how that works out. 
But I will tell you, by the time the fight kicks off, I can imagine this line getting really close to even, if not seeing it flip and seeing Hendricks at the favorite. You don't have to be a brain, you know, brain scientist or a brain surgeon to look up their topology and see that they fought last year and Hendricks beat Hamlet. Now, Hamlet does have a path to victory. He loves to hug and tug and rub and all that stuff and keep it ugly and staying close. And if he does that for two of the three rounds, he will win the fight. That's what he does. It's not sexy. It's not exciting, but he does it well. Now, in the process, he takes some punches. He will eat some punches while he's coming in for those takedowns. He will also fatigue. You look at him at the end of round two, in round three, if he's forced to be on the feet with a decent striker, he has a hard time. Now, notably, though, when they fought last time, what ended up happening was Corey Hendricks submitted him. So, look, the reality is I think this is Corey Hendricks' fight to lose. He should win the fight. It should be closely contested at some point, but I like him here. Now, not to mention, I love him at plus money. You've got right now Corey Hendricks sitting at plus 135 on DraftKings, around plus 140 on FanDuel. He's got a path to victory. He's at the better gym. I don't know much about the gym that Martin Hamlet trains at. I've, I think I've heard of it before, Frontline Academy. But uh, Syndicate MMA is one of the top gyms in the country. It's based in Vegas. I just feel like with Corey Hendricks coming off the win last year against this same opponent, having fought, so these guys have fought the same competition, by the way. They've both been in the PFL now for a little bit. They fought similar competition. Neither guy has broken through to like the UFC. They've had some runs in the Bellator arena. But bottom line is this, Corey Hendricks is a taller fighter. If I could poke at his game, I would say, gets sloppy at times. Yes, gets a little bit sloppy. Not always the best fighter IQ decisions. His striking, again, gets sloppy. You can argue that maybe Martin Hamlet has more power at times in his hands, but man, that's a small portion of the fight when he's actually got some energy. So as you can tell, I like Corey Hendricks in this spot. I like him all day, every day. It appears the public completely agrees with me, but for some reason, again, you got Corey Hendricks sitting right now at plus money. Unless there's another factor going on that I'm not aware of, I would put some money here on Corey Hendricks. I wouldn't overdo it. It is still about between two guys that are very evenly matched in, in some areas. And Martin Hamlet does have the four-year youth advantage, along with the grappling hugging advantage. When they're both fresh, Martin Hamlet will be the stronger fighter in the clinch situations. I can see him scraping some takedowns. It'll be up to Corey Hendricks to defend those takedowns, reverse position, survive round one, survive round one into round two, which surviving just means don't freak out, don't blow your gas tank trying to get back up. Let Martin Hamlet maybe have position for a little bit. Martin won't submit him. He won't finish him. That's just not his style. And for Corey Hendricks, it's a wonderful opportunity to finish the season on a winning note because for these guys right here, they didn't qualify for the playoffs. That's why they're in the prelim card, but they were fighting this year for PFL. So at least finish this year on a winning note, get ready for next year. I'm not sure if you're coming back for the PFL or not, but both guys, similar spot, right? Similar age. They're both nine and four. I like Corey Hendricks here and I definitely love my plus money. I'm going to play him half unit at the best, maybe a quarter unit because I do lack the confidence that I probably should have. But the numbers are telling you he should win. He won last year against the same opponent and he finished him. That's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we have the first heavyweight fight of the card. 265 pounders, Marcelo Nunes from Brazil versus Dylan Potter, who goes by Big Papa. Big Papa Hills from Olympia, Washington. And this is a very late last minute change. Matter of fact, five days out. So Dylan Potter is coming in here on five days notice. That is not good news for him. He's a 10 and five overall athlete, not a terrible record, but never fought on this level. His one LFA fight, he lost that fight. So no Bellator experience, no PFL experience, obviously no UFC experience, a questionable spot for him at best. As for Marcelo Nunes, who's eight and one overall, pretty good record. He's now based out of Minnesota, 33 years old, 
six foot three in height with a 76 inch reach. So he'll have a one inch height advantage, but a one inch reach disadvantage here with Dylan Potter. Now Dylan Potter is 10 and five overall, three one and one in his last five fights, 27 years old. So is the much younger fighter at six years, but it's heavyweight again. So 33 years old is sort of in those prime years. Dylan Potter is six foot two, so gives up one inch in height and 77 inch reach has one inch in reach advantage. He's out of American top team, not the one in Florida, the one in Portland, Oregon, which I guess is pretty good too. It has some affiliation, but it's not quite the, you know, uh, the animal house that you have there in Florida. As for the public votes here on Tapology, Nunez is the big favorite, getting 89% of the votes with only 11% coming in for Potter. It makes sense. I like Nunez in the original matchup. Nunez was supposed to square off against Adam Koresh, the Israeli heavyweight fighter who's had a little bit of an up and down run so far in the PFL. But I like Nunez in that matchup. I definitely like him here. Problem is, Moneyline's not available yet. I imagine the Moneyline comes out and you have Nunez sitting around like minus 400, minus 500. If you're going to parlay him, get him early in the week. It's going to probably come out sometime Monday, Tuesday. When it comes out, parlay him early because you could be guaranteed by Thursday, Friday, when everyone kind of comes around and people realize, oh, it's PFL on Friday, they're going to steam it. It's going to probably close somewhere between minus 700 to minus 1,000. If it doesn't already open up around minus five to 600 as it is. But yeah, he's going to win the fight for Dylan Potter. Again, hasn't really fought at this level. Now, Marcelo Nunes is not a veteran in the PFL by any means. Don't get me wrong. He hasn't fought at like UFC or whatever else, but he does have a PFL win already under his belt. He's also fought in CFC, which is a very good promotion. So I know at least he's fought in some good promotions. He's on a winning streak. He's also done some grappling. Overall, he should have this fight every which way, shape, or form. Probably get to finish of some kind. Maybe on the ground. I can see him maybe get an arm triangle. Like, for example, his last two fights, he's won by an arm triangle choke. You can see him getting that big body on top of his opponent here. You can see Dylan Potter getting gassed out in round two or three, not having the cardio for the full fight. I mean, his only chance is round one, right? Just let it go. Go in here if you only know on five days' notice that you're fighting. And he hasn't fought in about a year, so he's not very active. All signs point towards Marcelo Nunes, Nunes excuse me, winning the fight. Again, how are you going to play it? It's going to have to be a parlay piece. You're going to have to get it early in the week because otherwise it's going to be just priced out. So that's your breakdown, guys. Look at this fight. All right, now we're on to the post-liminary fights, the fights that will be held after the main card. And we may not even get a chance to see these fights. So I'm going to warn you, I'm going to run through them very quickly, not thorough breakdowns, but these lines are out there. They are available to bet on. It just kind of suck. You might not be able to see the fights. We'll talk. We'll start with the first one. Alexei Pergand versus Elvis LeBron Quilis. Now, Alexei Pergand, we actually had him on the show some months ago after his last PFL win. He looked very good. That was about oh, six, seven months ago. Beat a guy who was very strong, very big, came out, imposed his dominance, got a finish. Just looked tremendous. Looked like a good prospect. Now, he's not available for the playoffs this year because he's like a new prospect in the PFL, only 21 years old. But it's an important fight for him to keep it going. He's only 1-0. Exactly. 1-0 as a professional. So he's looking to get himself a second win, move into 2022, probably with his next fight. I'm sorry, 2023 with his next fight in the PFL against Elvis LeBron Quilis. Now, LeBron Quilis, who goes by cutthroat, has no fight experience, like none, as in zero and zero. So to me, this looks like an opportunity where the PFL is trying to get their boy, Alexei Pelegron, another fight. Now, he's had some amateur bouts. I should say that. LeBron. LeBron. What a, what a middle name, right? Elvis LeBron Quilis. He does have four amateur bouts. He's 4-0 in those bouts. All four went to decision. No big deal, but seems to lack some finishing ability. He's coming in here against a guy, Alexei Pergan, who at first glance... You know, he's like one of those guys you just saw, oh, whatever, looks like an okay athlete. The guy has got skills, a very long 
background in mixed martial arts from boxing to striking to wrestling was like a state champion in high school for wrestling had a had a very good amateur boxing career like national team level like national champion level boxing his father trained him and his brother when they were very young he's at a good gym in nashville i'm biased towards him i've talked to the guy had him on the show and i like him a lot I like him a lot i think unless i've got this mixed up here this to me seems like a perfect situation for him at one and oh it's the start of his career. Let's pad the record, get him some guys in there where he could just punch him a little bit, get some experience, maybe get you know a few rounds in there and get the win. If the fight hits the ground, he will submit LeBron. He will submit LeBron. He's very good in the ground, very nasty. On the feet, man, the guy's got hands. He's a striker. He's quick with his hands. Again, has the boxing foundation, so quick hands, guards back up, good footwork. Every which way, shape, or form, the Russian DNA, that's his nickname, Alexei Pergan, goes by Russian DNA. I believe he wins the fight. He's sitting right now on the money line at approximately minus 285. A little chalky for a guy who's minus, you know, only one to know. I get it. But if you look more into this athlete, you'll see what I'm saying. We've done full breakdowns on him before. He is legit. He is very legit. Look at his last fight in the PFL or his first fight in the PFL or his first fight ever. I'm sorry. In, in professional mixed martial arts, he dominates a guy who's very big and very strong. Big, black, imposing guy. Took care of him with no problem. So again, I like Alexei Pergain here. I'll be parlaying him this week. For the exact parlays, we'll do some post-show parlay talk and our wrap-up at the end. But our parlays will also be available on our profile under Bet I mean, that Tips. Check out our profile. We'll also be tweeting out some of the parlays throughout the week. But I love Alexei Pergain in the spot. He's probably my almost lock of my post-liminary fights. Post-liminary fights, the fights that are going on after the main card. Again, I like Alexei Pergain here a lot. I'll be parlaying him. Don't think I'll be playing it straight up. A little too chalky for my liking. That's big exposure, you know, 285 bucks to make 100. But again, like a 21-year-old in this spot, I think the PFL and his management, his team doing a great job giving him an easy opponent, a guy who's never even fought a pro mixed martial arts fight and who obviously has no finishing ability with four amateur fights and no finishes. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. All right, next fight in the post-liminary card is going to be a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Lucas Barboza, who goes by the Hulk, who's from Brazil, versus Elmar Umarov. Yes, Umarov is from, you guessed it, he's from Russia with the OV at the end. Umarov is 4-1 overall. He's a favorite here, currently sitting at, let me look it up to be sure. It's been moving around a little bit, that's why I'm double-checking here. But you got Umarov sitting at minus 140, just about a pick em price. And quite frankly... To me, this is not a pick -em. I do think Lucas Barboza is a decent fighter. He does provide some submission ability. We'll put it that way. Very good Brazilian jiu-jitsu background. But when it comes to mixed martial arts overall, Elmer Umarov has not just more fight experience. He's just a better overall mixed martial artist. Now, the particulars in these two fighters, Barbosa is 2-1 overall, sitting at a plus, you know, plus 120, plus 130 underdog out of San Diego, California, 30 years old, 5'10 in height with no reach number. He's out of Atos Brazilian jiu-jitsu. As for Elmer Umarov, Four and one, minus 140 on my line, out of St. Louis, Missouri. 26 years old in 11 months, so about to be 27, just only three years in age difference. He's also 5'10", with about a 70-inch reach, and he trains out of St. Charles MMA. So both guys are out of smaller gyms, gyms I've never even heard of, and both guys have limited experience, three fights compared to five fights. But when you look at the topology, you'll notice something right away. For example, Lucas Barboza, his topology, there's a lot of action there, and a lot of green, tons of bouts grappling bouts i mean he's grappled gilbert burns he's grappled guys that are in the ufc he's grappled some of the top guys in the world and he's obviously got good grappling skills because he's winning those bouts against guys like for example gilbert burns but at the same time 
these type of guys who are so one-dimensional, they have a shelf life in mixed martial arts. We've seen these guys. They tend to get beat up because while they're chasing submissions and they've got their hands down here chasing this and that, someone's punching them in the face. There's a shelf life for only being able to be a grappler. And when you look at Lucas Barbosa, his tapology clearly screams of that. When it comes to mixed martial arts bouts, there's only a handful. A matter of fact, the last time that he fought a mixed martial arts bout based upon this tapology for Lucas Barboza was all the way back in like 2012. 10 years ago was the last time that he got in the octagon and fought a mixed martial arts bout. This to me appears like the perfect bout to get Elmer Umadoff a win. You know, we've talked about this, padding the record, if that's what you want to call it. That'll be a version of padding the record. Bring a guy in there to fight with you who doesn't fight at all, never has the gloves on, now, he is a jiu-jitsu guy. He can, you know, yoke you up on the ground and hurt you. But most of these Russians are fairly affluent on the ground. And if he has a good game plan, keep the fight on the feet. That's his path to victory. Now, the biggest thing for me when you look at Elmar Umadov's fight tapology, the two wins in the LFA. LFA is a very good promotion. So, 2-1 and one in the LFA. He lost via round two knockout against Benjamin Bennett. That was last year. Coming into this fight off of a rear naked choke in round one that he got in his last fight. He has three total submission wins on his five fight career, has some submission ability. If the fight hits the ground, I imagine he's able to at least defend himself. Now he does have some amateur experience as well. That's Elmer Umadoff, eight and zero in his amateur career. And as for Lucas Barboza, no amateur mixed martial arts experience, but again, a ton of grappling experience against some of the best guys in the world. To me, it's pretty simple. If I'm managing Elmer Umadoff, this is a good opponent for my fighter. Test him a little bit from the grappling exchanges, force a good game plan, strike at distance, maybe find a finish at some point. But at the very least, when they go to the scorecards, you should have done more in those three rounds to win the fight. That's my pick, guys. I like Elma Umadov. And at minus 140, I've got some confidence in this spot. I mean, I would understand if this spot was even like a minus 190, minus 200. You have a guy who's fighting mixed martial arts against a guy who hasn't touched the mat for mixed martial arts in almost a decade. That's your breakdown, guys. I like the Russian here, Elma Umadov. All right, next up, we have another post-liminary bout. It's a lightweight fight at 155 pounds between Elvin Espinoza, who's out of Nicaragua slash Miami, Florida currently, versus Corey Jackson, who goes by Maximus. Maximus is based out of Indiana. Maximus is 5-1 overall. A big dog here. This really surprised me. One of the biggest dogs in the entire card. He's currently sitting at plus 280, and I can't quite figure out why. There must be something else that I'm not picking up on. Elvin Espinoza is a very good fighter. But these guys are very inexperienced. You got six total fights on each side, six and overs, five and one. I get that Jackson's a little bit older, 34, but he's not that old. He's in very good shape. He's got him some wins under his belt. He's fought in Bellator, decent promotions. So I don't quite get it. Right off the bat, I'm looking to try to find a reason to bet on Corey Jackson. I'll tell you that right now when I first took a look at this. Not to mention Corey Jackson's also out of ATT Atlanta, a pretty good gym. Not ATT Florida but still a good gym. Anyway, back to the particulars in two fighters. Espinosa is undefeated at 6-0, a big favorite here at minus 350 to minus 360. From Nicaragua, but now he's based out of Miami, Florida, 29 years old, 5'9", high with a 73-inch reach, and he's at round 5 MMA. As for Mr. Jackson, who goes by Maximus, 5-1 overall, a big dog here, as we mentioned before, out of Michigan City, Indiana, 34 years old, 5'8", height, no reach number on him. He's out of American Top Team Atlanta. So height-wise, one inch goes to Elvin Espinosa, and reach-wise, I would imagine an inch or two also will be on the side of Espinosa. And looking at the numbers on Tapology, it appears that Espinosa is a huge favorite, getting 96% of the, the votes, only 4% for Jackson. So I'm scratching my head. I, I, don't, I don't really comprehend. It is a fight. Anyone has a shot to win a fight. 
And in that scenario, you know, you got to give each guy a puncher's chance. I get that Corey Jackson is maybe towards the tail end of his experience with mixed martial arts, and Elvin Espinosa has more potential. But I don't love this price tag, and I would not feel comfortable parlaying any kind of level like this. Like, when I talk about this level, these guys are very new to the professional scene. They're in a post-liminary, you know, card for a reason. Do you want to put a minus 340 spot into your parlay? You're getting minimal value. And when he loses, you're going to be like, I don't even, I couldn't even see it. I couldn't even watch it on television. So here's my play here. I'm going to go dog or pass. I don't use it very often, but I'm going to use it in this spot. I think I'm going to go dog or pass with Corey Jackson as my pick to win at plus 280. Now, do I have the cojones to actually put some money behind that? My money where my mouth is? I will, but I'll do something very small, like at most a, a quarter, you know, like $25 just to have some action on it, even if I'm not watching the fight, right? But you can't convince me that a guy who's 6-0, and who's only fought in regional promotions like Icon, he did have a win in PFL so far, yes. He's fought in XFN, Combat Night Pro, Icon, and then again, the one win, Last year, almost a full year ago, August last year, he had a rear naked choke win in round one over Hopton Stewart, another guy who has very limited experience. I just don't know what else to go off of. He has an amateur record, yes, has some wins, has a few losses in his amateur career, Elvin, Elvin Espinosa, that is. But as for Corey Jackson, you know, he's 3-1 and one as an amateur, has some decent pro wins, has fought against guys that, again, he went to Bellator, lost against a Bellator opponent by decision. He fought HFC, Extreme Fight Night, NFC, I think you're talking about the same type of guy here, right? I, aren't we talking about the same level of a fighter here? So having not dived into film, I will put that out there. I, I have not spent the time diving and doing film study of these guys. I just don't have the time for that this week with UFC in the horizon. Dana White Contender Series is on Tuesday. We did a bunch of film study with that. So I'm skimming over the post-liminary fights for this card, if you will forgive me for that. But I'm going to put a little stab on Corey Jackson. Elvin Espinosa, I mean, if he goes out there and whoops his ass and does the deed... At minus 340, then okay, great job. But I just don't see any reason to rationalize that kind of spot, that kind of money line, where these are an opponent that are so evenly matched. Now, the next fight will be a little different. We'll talk about the next fight. But for this fight right here, I'm going to take a stab at Corey Jackson. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. And what appears to be the last fight on the card, like very, very last one. After the main card, last fight in the post-liminary card, it's going to be a matchup in featherweight at 145 pounds. This little Hulu theater arena they have in Madison Garden is going to be empty by the time these guys are fighting. I'm sorry to say it. Everyone's going to be gone by this time. Nonetheless, we're going to have Brian Zerker versus Ricardo Jimenez. It's not Brian. It's Brian Zerker. Brian Zerker is from Nevada. He's 3-0, undefeated, looking good, young prospect, and another huge favorite on the money line. This setup's a little different, though. It's not like the last fight where he's a big favorite. There's nothing to warrant it. Here, what we have is another scenario where I'm going to suggest there might be some record padding going on, and we're getting him served up a dish that he's going to easily finish up. So Mr. Zerker, based out of Nevada, 26 years young, 5'10 in height, no reach number on him, and no gym. I didn't look it up. If you do some Googling, I wouldn't be surprised if he's at some kind of a gym in Vegas of some kind, because he's in Nevada, correct, right? His opponent, Ricardo Jimenez. Mr. Jimenez has fought four total mixed martial arts fights. Let me double check on that. I want to make sure I don't have my math wrong. You know, currently he's listed on Tapology as 0-1-1. Okay, that's right. Correct. He's fought two boxing matches, and he's fought two mixed martial arts batch matches in his professional career, and he still has no wins. Okay? So his two boxing matches finished with one being a loss and one being a draw. 
His two mixed martial arts fights finished with a draw and also an L. Somehow he's pulled this off. A loss and a tie in each different sport to start off his career. He has fought twice already this year. You like the fact that he's active. He fought in March, March 24th, a boxing match lost by split decision. Then goes and fights in February, May of this year, May 20th to be exact, and then loses by split decision again via a draw. I mean, it's or not loses. I'm sorry, goes to a a draw by split draw. <laughs> I mean, his record is a mess. There's a draw decision by majority. There's a draw by split loss. I mean. This guy can't catch a break. Now, he did have an amateur career. He went 4-3 and three as an amateur, losing twice to the same guy, Matt Caracapa, and also losing to a guy named Torrance LaCour. I think pretty clearly you got a guy who's up and down here, hasn't quite hit his stride as professional. On the flip side, you got a guy in Mr. Zerker, Brian Zerker from Nevada, who's 3-0, and looking very good, has already fought once this year in the PFL, got a decision win, so he's got the PFL level experience and got a win at that level. Prior to that, he fought in Combate Global. Combate's decent. He fought last year in Combate, got a round two triangle choke over Tyler Hinton, so we know he could do some choking. He opened his career against Aaron Villa, also last year, April of last year, got a rear naked choke win in round one. So we know he could do some choking. We know he's a little more active. He's got three total fights in mixed martial arts as a professional. His amateur record, a little scary because he was three and three. You don't like seeing a guy at that level catching a 500 record as an amateur. But he got some experience, and when it comes to experience overall, he's got more winning experience, has shown better results. I think Brian Zerker and his management team are giving him a fight that he should win against an opponent who is in dire need of a W. Maybe he's a boxer. Maybe he's a mixed martial artist. We don't know. Here's the point. If you're going to bet this fight, maybe take in Brian Zerker and put him into one or two parlays. Not the mortgage parlay. Not the savings account parlay. Not the parlay you're sure it's going to hit. But put him into maybe one or two parlays. If you track us on Tips, you'll see how we're going to play him. We'll also talk about it at the end of the show a little bit more. We wrap up our parlays all together. But nonetheless, I think Brian Zerker is a safer parlay here than, for example, Elvin Espinoza. So that's a good example. Last fight, we talked about Espinoza, who's sitting at 6-0 undefeated. Also undefeated. Even more fights, right? At minus 340, though, but against an opponent who I believe gives him a little more of a test. We'll give him something in there. Whereas you got a guy in Ricardo Jimenez has not shown anything thus far. Has been able to notch a win in boxing or mixed martial arts. So I like Brian Zerker to get the win here. I like him in some parlays as well. And this would wrap up and be the last fight on this card. I think it's the last fight. Hopefully the order doesn't get all mixed up on me. That's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight if you're betting on it. Moving up the card, which should be the second bout on the main card, another playoff bout. It's going to be between Olivier Albon Mercier and Alex Martinez. This will, of course, be a playoff bout, a semifinal fight. The winner moves on to the finals with a chance to win $1 million. So some basic information on these two fighters for OAM, as they call him for short, for Olivier Albon Mercier, who goes by the Canadian gangster. He's 15-5 and five overall, 4-1 his last five fights. Quite a big favorite in the spot. He's sitting currently at minus 240. I like him quite a bit in the spot. Granted, he goes to decision. So there's always the risk of a blind judge or just something, you know, feronious going on that you really can't predict. OAM is from Montreal, Quebec, 33 years old, 5'9 in height with a 70 and a half inch reach. He trains out of TriStar Gym and H2O MMA. We've got Mr. Martinez here who hails from Paraguay, 28 years old, 
six feet in height, so about two and a half inches taller than Mercier, though I've got to see the face off. I just can't really believe that. A two and a half reach advantage for the Paraguayan fire, Alex Martinez. He's out of champion, Jim. As for the votes coming out of Tapology, Urban Mercier is a huge favorite, getting 95% of the votes here, only 5% coming in for Martinez. Now, granted, it's only 316 votes so far, but I agree. I think Urban Mercier wins this fight hands down, and that's partially because I'm not sold on Martinez. Few fights, kind of getting by, split decision wins. Last fight, I don't think he won. I'm still kind of angry about that fight because I had collared. I like Oban Mercier in this fight, but my big concern, the huge red flag, is that both fighters depend upon the scorecards. Neither fighter here is a finisher. And when you go into decision after decision after decision, ultimately it can happen. A judge can see something different and it comes down to moments, right? So when you're not finishing a fight, if it's close, which these guys tend to fight close fights, you're leaving it up in the air. The, probably the best bet in this fight is the fight goes to decision. That prop would uh, relieve you of choosing a side. That might be your best bet. Some background information now on these two fighters. Looking first at OAM, Mr. Mercier from Canada. He's 4-0 as an amateur. He went pro 2011, so been a pro for now, what, 11 years? He did have a run in the UFC. That's notable. And he went 7-5 in the UFC. I mean, at one point, things were going well. He was seven and two, then drops three in a row and gets the boot. So that's how he ended his run in the UFC. He's currently four and in the PFL. He hasn't lost a fight in over three years. His last fight was against Roush Monfio. That was earlier this year, about two months ago. He won the fight by decision. It was his last fight. He was a minus 150 favorite. It was a very slow fight. At some point you heard the fans booing and that's the problem with Olivier Aubin Mercier. He's doing just enough to win fights. He's not trying to get his hands too dirty. For him, it's about points, it's about technique and I respect that too. But some guys come out there and just say, listen, I want blood, guts and gory and I wanna go out there and win a fight. That's not Mercier's style. His prior fight, Natan Schulte, 2022 split decision win. That was earlier this year. Natan Schulte, what? He's a former PFL winner himself, very good fighter. Been slipping recently. So Olivier Oba Mercier gets that fight. His prior fight last year, 2021, against Daryl Horcher, wins the fight by, you guessed it, decision. And then also wins his prior fight before that. Last four fights in a row have all gone to decision. He beats Marcin Held last year by decision. When you pull up Oba Mercier's topology, a lot of wins, some losses. The losses in the UFC were quality. He lost to Armand Zarukian and Gilbert Burns and Alexander Hernandez, all quality guys that are still in the UFC. Now, what's to like about OAM? What's to like about his style? Amazing cardio, obvious. He's going to decision a lot. He's finishing the fight on his feet, looks pretty good. The judges are rewarding him. They're giving him the decision wins. So from that standpoint, great cardio, good gas tank, and also manages his energy very well. He fought 13 fights in the UFC. Most guys go to the UFC, they last what? three, four fights, and they're out of there. 13 fights is a lot, and a winning percentage, seven and five overall record. And the losses were against decent opponents, especially at the end. So you love the experience factor. He also fights out of a southpaw stance. Now he's not an amazing boxer or striker. He's not coming off like any kind of Bruce Lee or nothing like that. But still, a southpaw is always something that the other fighter has to adjust to. He knows how to maintain range. Again, he's not like an Israel Adesanya or a Floyd Mayweather, but he can keep his range, which is like, how do I put this? It's fucking boring. So he's basically keeping range and keeping the fight slow and never really committing to anything. It plays into his game plan. On the flip side, his opponent here likes to do the same thing. So we might see some booing at time in this fight. I can imagine that. Now, what are my concerns for Olivier Mercier? He lacks finishing ability. We've kind of beat on that already. Seven straight fights that he's been in have been by decision. His last finish was over four years ago. He fights tentative at times. Okay, you can imagine that. A guy who's not a finisher, who's not looking to be aggressive. Tentative, he could argue, it's tactical. 
His coach can argue he's being safe, plotting, he's finding his strategy. I get it. It's just not box office. What if he's in a close fight? What if OAM needs the final round? What if this dude needs a finish at some point? Well, you're screwed if you have a bet ticket here with him on it. So from that standpoint, I don't like the tentative patient approach. And lastly, he depends entirely on the scorecards. I mean, it's an obvious, yes, but he's looking to win based upon the judges giving him the win. He's not going to go out there and get it. If he had a fight, for example, on Tuesday night on Dana White Contender Series, he would not get a contract. <laughs> That's just not in his DNA. Now, as for Alex Martinez, he's 15-4 and four as an amateur. He turned pro 2016, so he's been a pro for about six years. He fought in XFFC and Brave CF along with Icon prior to the PFL. He's currently 3-2 and two in the PFL, and he's on a two-fight winning streak. His last fight was against Clay Collard. That was just about two and a half, three months ago. Wins the fight by split decision. He was a plus 140 underdog. A very close fight. I mean, I'm not going to shoot the judges for giving the fight to Alex Martinez, but it's my humble opinion and the opinion of a lot of other people that Clay Collard won the fight. I remember I was watching that fight on a live stream with my buddy Ronj over at Capra Comparison Picks, and more or less everyone on the broadcast, him, myself, Dave, we all thought that the win was going to go for Clay Collard. We felt confident. I had Clay Collard in some parlays that night, and that came tumbling down. The London Bridge comes falling down. Well, it fell down that night, and Alex Martinez was the brunt of my joke unfortunately um or vice versa i was the brunt of the alex martinez joke i thought he lost and so that lingering taste in my mouth has me thinking even the recent two fight winning streak even his participation here in the pfl playoffs a little squirrely if you can catch my drift so that fight clay collard i thought he lost he was very tentative didn't push the pace barely won prior fight earlier this year against stevie ray he was a minus 140 favorite he won that fight by decision Last year fought Loik Radzabov, lost by decision as a plus 185 underdog, but they also fought before that, prior in that 2021 season. He actually beat Radzabov by split decision as a plus 310 underdog. If you had Martinez that night, that was a nice return. Then he fought Natan Schult last year, lost by split decision. So they both fought Natan Schult with OAM winning by split decision and Martinez losing by split decision. So these guys, like, there's a lot of similarities, and that ultimately is where my big red flags come up. Though I like OAM, aren't they a bit of the same? Like same, same, but different? Like same, same, but go to the scorecards? For Martinez, what do I like about his game plan? He'll have a three-inch reach advantage here. Well, two and a half to be exact based upon tapology. He's a very balanced fighter. On the feet, on the ground, he's got accountability for himself. He could fight either place. He's safe in the ground. He's not an amazing jiu-jitsu artist, but he's got good overall grappling skills. And lastly, the judges are rewarding him. They are giving him these decisions. They are giving him these close split decision wins. You got to give it to the guy. Whatever he's doing, it's working. Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Martinez? It's the same concerns I have for OAM. He lacks finishing ability. He's been a decision in all five of his PFL losses. Now, if you go out before the PFL, yeah, there's some finishes there. Now, in a higher promotion, a little more competition, no more finishes. I don't expect a finish in this fight. Both guys are just too tentative. He's just the same as OAM. He's waiting for the scorecards, doing just enough, points fighting, and lacks a sense of urgency. If either guy can have like a dominant round or two, Go into round three, up two rounds to nothing for sure, no question. The fighter who's down will have to do something they've never done before for Martinez or for OAM and show a sense of urgency. Neither guy is doing that. It's a big criticism I have of both fighters. We watched five fights to bring on this film. We watched Mercier versus Horcher from last year, Mercier versus Schult from this year, and Mercier versus Manfio just about two months ago. We also watched Martinez versus Ratzabov and Martinez versus Ray. Those five fights are available. If you look down below on YouTube, in our description, those five fights are available. Those five links are there as part of our free video library. In conclusion, I see Olivier Aubin-Mercier winning by decision. That's the outcome I come to. 
Would I be surprised, like completely shocked if Martinez wins by decision? Absolutely not. But what would surprise me is if somehow one of these two guys finishes each other. Expect some boost at some point. I like Olivier a lot in this spot. I think he's the much better overall fighter. I mean, seven wins in the UFC. He's not an old man. You know, he's a guy who still has plenty left in the tank. I like Mercier here. That's a breakdown. I'm gonna play him in some parlays, not straight up. Good luck with this fight, guys. Up next, we have what should be the first fight on the main card, a semifinal bout in the playoffs at 205 pounds, a light heavyweight bout between Rob Razor Wilkinson and Delon Monte. Mr. Wilkinson hails from Australia, now via Colorado, actually did some time in Tanzania. Did time, I meant lived there. He didn't do time in jail, but uh, the guy's very world-traveled. We'll talk more about that in his profile. And then we've got Delon Monte, the Brazilian fighter who's 28 years old in 10 months, Coming off of an exciting win his last fight where he knocked out Emiliano Sorti in round one. His prior fight was his PFL debut loss in the round one via a submission to Antonio Carlos Jr. We'll talk more about that. But nonetheless, these are guys that are two exciting fighters. They both have finishing ability and it should be a good fight. Though I'm going to edge Rob Wilkinson. Not a big surprise. He's sitting around minus 280 to minus 300 right now on the money line. Delon Monte is 9-2 overall. 4-1 his last five fights. Sitting currently around plus 225. He's from Rio Grande Norte, Brazil, 28 years old in 10 months, six foot in height with a 74 inch reach, and he trains out of Evoluku Thai Muay Thai. As for Rob Wilkinson, who trains out of Factory X Muay Thai, he goes by Razor, 15 and 2 overall, a big favorite at minus 280 to minus 300. He's 4 1 his last five fights, again, based out of Australia, now via Englewood, Colorado, 30 years old, six foot three in height with an 80 inch reach. Now, height wise, three inches for Wilkinson. But reach rise, wow, six inches for Wilkinson, who is the veteran. That's going to play out in the feet. Delon Monte, we haven't seen much from him on film. It's been shorter fights. Both fights ended in round one. He's a bit of a brawler. He likes to swing. But if they're going to swing on the range, you know, be on their feet, you imagine Rob Wilkinson will have the obviously reach advantage. And that will play out in his favor. Now, according to the votes on Tapology, Wilkinson is the big figure. 96% of the votes, only 4% coming in for Monte. It makes sense. I could argue that Wilkinson may be one of the safer bets on this entire card. Looking at the background of these two fighters, Rob Wilkinson, very well-traveled. If you go on Instagram, he does hiking, loves animals, no hunting per se. He likes animals, likes to travel, lived in Tanzania for a while, still may live in Tanzania, I'm not sure. He's been a pro athlete for 11 years in mixed martial arts. During the pandemic, he couldn't find fights. He started boxing and kickboxing. So the guy is the kind of person where if he can't find his own sport to play, he'll do something else to stay active. And he was 3-0 in kickboxing and boxing. He fought in the UFC in 2017, 2018. He had two fights at middleweight, mind you. Look at this guy. He's not shredded, but man, he's in really good shape. And you're thinking at 205, he looks like exactly where he belongs. To imagine he was almost 25 pounds lighter at 185 fighting in the UFC, man, that probably was contributing to him not doing so well. He lost two fights in the UFC. One of those was Israel Asanya. Kind of excuse him for that. He's gotten 2-0 so far in the PFL this year with two finishes. His last fight was against Victor Pesta. He beat him in round one via KO. That was about a month ago. Now, Pesta, to put things all in perspective, he was 0-2 this year in the PFL, and he couldn't make it out of the entire fight. Got knocked out both times, and I believe it was in first round. So putting that in context, you know, Rob Wilkinson did what he should have done, but Pesta wasn't much of a challenge. A prior fight for him, Bruce Soto. He won that fight via round two TKO. That was earlier this year as well, part of his 2-0 run this year in the PFL. Soto is also 0-2 this year in the PFL and hasn't done a good job. So these two fights he had under his belt this year for Rob Wilkinson have been sort of gimmies, and you could argue this fight right here is also a gimme. 
I think Rob Wilkinson is destined to make the finals this year and compete for that $1 million prize if he can get here, obviously, past the younger fighter in Delon Monte. Now, one more fact to talk about for Rob Wilkinson. If you go back 2018 TKO loss in round two to Israel Adesanya. In round one, there are a few moments there for Rob Wilkinson. He does get Israel gets defense, does get multiple takedowns, but Israel gets right back up. He does take a nasty knee, though, while trying to get the takedowns. And once they sort of separate, you see the damage on his nose or some bleeding. And then from there, Israel pieces him up and gets the finish in round two. He had the right game plan. He was using the same game plan as Jan Blachowicz to possibly take Israel down, and it was working to an extent. And if I was going to say Rob Wilkinson is either a stand-up striker or wrestler, I think the guy's more of a wrestler. He's more of a grappler. You know, that's really where I believe his instincts are. He does really well there. Ground and pound game is phenomenal. If he can posture up on the ground, that's really where I feel like he's at his best. On the feet, he's not bad either. Has finishes on the feet too. But there's a hidden wrestler in there. There's a guy who wants to wrestle and grapple. He does that very well. Now, what's to like about the old man, Rob Wilkinson? I say old man. He's only 30 years old. But the veteran. High-level experience, having those two fights in the UFC, sharing the octagon cage for a round and a half with a world champion like Adesanya, that's invaluable. And when it comes to finishing ability, you've got to look at Rob Wilkinson's topology. It'll blow you away. He's got 13 straight wins in a row via finish. He had 13 in a row. Now, that's got some kickboxing and boxing missed in there, but the guy is a finishing machine. He aims to finish the fight. I do not expect this fight to go the full distance. I think he finishes Delon Monte in round one or round two, and I'll be more specific how he does it and why, but the guy's got an excellent finish rate. He goes for the kill when his opponent is hurt. That sounds obvious, but let me give you an example. Last week, we watched Mays, the heavyweight fight against the guy who went by the hammer, okay? So the hammer goes in there, drags it out for three rounds, gets a split decision win. But in round two of that fight, Mays had his opponent hurt. He had him hurt but he didn't go for the kill. You know those fighters who are like, they have their opponent hurt, but they just don't have that gene? Well, in the case of Rob Wilkinson, he has that gene. If he smells blood in the water, if he tastes blood, if he knows his opponent is hurt or getting tired, he will go forward, he will attack. I love that about him. He's also got the wrestling component. People don't think of him as a wrestler. They see TKO victory after TKO victory. Many of those are on the ground. He punishes people on the ground. He's really good at wrestling. He will wear you down. And I expect him to wrestle Delon Monte, if the fight gets anywhere past, let's say, two minutes of round one, there'll be something there from Rob to clinch, drag the fight to the ground to find a victory that way if he doesn't knock out Delon Monte before then. Now, what are my concerns for Wilkinson? You got to wonder about the durability. He's had two losses in his career, only two. Both times got finished. Granted, they were both in the UFC. He's never been finished outside the UFC. Wilkinson is a technical fighter. He's a smart guy. He's a veteran. But he can get into that brawling mode at times. And both guys like that. Once we're in brawl mode, it flip a coin at this point. 205-pound men that are in very good shape, swinging from the hips. It's who connects first, who connects harder, angles, chin, whatever else the case may be. Wilkinson has a pretty good chin. He took a bit of a beating from Israel Adesanya before he folded up and got out of there. So I imagine his chin's maybe a little better than Monte. And if you go to Monte, his last fight, he won the last fight, but his prior fight against uh, Antonio Carlos Jr., he lost the fight by submission. But if you watch it on film, Antonio Carlos Jr. stuns him with a right hand in close, like a short right hand. That momentary stun allows Carlos Jr. to attack a takedown and then from there find the darts choke. But he got stunned by Antonio Carlos Jr., who that's a guy who's a good fighter. I mean, winner of the PFL last year, Carlos Jr., but not known for his power. 
So he went swinging with Carlos Jr. and he paid the price and eventually got finished. I think Wilkinson has more power than Antonio Carlos Jr. I think he's got more punching power, better striking power, just better striker. So if Monte came in here and decided to do that with Rob Wilkinson, I can see Wilkinson making him pay, put it that way. But it is a weakness for Wilkinson. He will stand in trade, and at some point, that's danger zone. Red lights blinking, danger zone. Now, as for Delon Monte, he went pro 2014 at 20 years old. He fought in Arena Global, Katana Fight, Shudo Brazil, and a handful of small other promotions part of the PFL. He's currently 1-1 one one in the PFL. We mentioned before the first fight earlier this year, lost to Carlos Jr., round one submitted in the last fight, had a nice KO win. Let's talk about that fight. Emilio Soriano, or Emilio Sorti, excuse me, he knocks out Sorti in round one as a big underdog. Exciting fight, nice finish. I could argue that Sorti is a shell of himself. He's been finished now back-to-back fights. Does not look very good. But in the case of Delon Monte, he did what he needed to do. He came out there as a plus 320 underdog, got the job done. Now, if you slow things down in that fight, like slow it down, rewind it, he has Sorti hurt. And while he's got Sorti hurt, He's kind of like being very sloppy, reckless, like unloading all kind of weird punches all from the hip. Nothing is focused, leaving himself open for someone who had a good counter punch or had a good gas tank or was more durable. It was very rookie move on his part. Now he gets the win. So on paper, it looks wonderful. But I'm telling you, if he tries that shit against a guy like Rob Wilkinson, he will number one, deplete his gas tank. And number two, he'll get just totally cracked. He'll get cracked. Now, the prior fight, Antonio Carlos Jr., earlier this year, round one submission loss. Again, take a glance at that fight. It's only a few minutes. He gets stunned. He gets stunned by Carlos Jr., leads to the takedown, leads to him trying to get back up from the takedown and get the Darce choke, and he tapped pretty quickly. But he also tapped in part because he was confused. You know, he was stunned, then getting choked, quick finish. Carlos Jr. was the champion last year in the PFL. Unfortunately, not in the playoffs now because he had a torn ACL recently. What's to like about Delon Monte? Very active fighter. This will be his third fight this year, which you love about the PFL guys. They're so active. So third fight this year. He also fought twice last year. Very high finish rate. This lends to how he fights. He's looking to knock his opponent out. Of his nine wins, eight have been by finish, five by TKO, and three by submission. He is from Brazil, but I don't see him as much of a grappler, jiu-jitsu guy. I see him as much more of a brawler, Mike Tyson-esque, trying to knock you out one punch. He does seem to have serious power in his hands. Now, granted, it's reckless power. It's not very accurate. It's coming from the hip, but there's power there, and the guy's built pretty stocky. He's built like a college linebacker. He's got shoulders. He's got some girth, put it that way. Now, what are my concerns for Delamonte? He's been submitted twice in his career, so submission defense is not his best thing. When you look at the fight against Sorty again, he's beating Sorty, he's got him, and they just like throwing all kind of crazy stuff. Instead of setting up a good strike or two, maybe landing a knee, he's just like backyard brawling, like you're in a brawl, you know, in, in the backyard, no technique. And so, yeah, I wonder about that. He throws haymakers. He doesn't throw jabs. There's no technique. There's no like one, two combination. No, it's just everything is wild. It's exciting. We'll get a finish here. Either he finishes Rob Wilkinson or Rob Wilkinson will clip him and finish him. But uh, it lacks technique. He does have punching power. We mentioned before. There's something behind it. But, you know, what gives? If you're throwing 10 punches, only one lands every now and then. It's not even flush. It doesn't really help you. So I just wonder about the efficiency of his fighting style. Put it that way. And last but not least, from a betting perspective, he's KO or bust. So if you're going to bet him here, take a prop on Delamonte by KO. 
I don't know what that is. It's not available just yet, but I would play that prop as a long shot prop because it's probably gonna be like plus 500 plus 600 plus something big, but that's his lone path to victory. Unfortunately, if he can't find that, he gets dragged down by Rob Wilkinson, gets fatigued, we get to round two. Rob's been there before, done that, and the veteran will make him pay. Now, Rob's only 30. You think of him as like, I think he's 35, 36, 37, just been around for a while. But the guy's a veteran looking good, looking the best he's ever looked in the right weight class. And so for DeLon Monte, then the biggest weakness for him is the fact that he's facing a guy who's got UFC former experience, who's just got overall better skills. Now, the fights we watched in this film, we watched Wilkinson versus Pesta from earlier this year, Wilkinson versus Soto from earlier this year, Wilkinson versus Adesanya from three years ago, actually four years ago, 2018, Monte versus Sorty from 2022, and Monte versus Carlos Jr. also earlier this year. If you didn't watch any one of those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube, you'll see those five links available. In conclusion, I think Rob Wilkinson wins the fight by TKO in round one. I like this spot a lot. From a betting perspective, I've parlayed Rob Wilkinson to win outright with some stuff in the um, UFC this weekend. I've also parlayed with some stuff on David Contender Series. A lot of confidence here in Rob Wilkinson. Playing him by TKO, I probably won't bet that prop, even though that's most likely to happen. Actually, the one prop I look at would just be Monte by TKO. That's his lone path to victory. Otherwise, I'm playing Rob Wilkinson on the money lines as a parlay piece. Let me know what you guys think. Do you like Rob Wilkinson, the veteran to win the fight? That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. And we are up to the co-main event between Amari Akhmedov from Russia versus Josh Silveria from the United States. And Silveria, interesting path to getting to this point. He's been a replacement now in the playoffs for Antonio Carlos Jr. He started off this year in the PFL Challenger Series, which is actually like their like their version of the Dana Contender Series, basically. He wins that match, gets a fight during the regular season, but he's not really part of the regular season thing, only gets one fight, but wins by finish in round one gets enough points to finish in the fifth position after they find all the tally points in the regular season right top four people go to the playoffs so he's not going initially number five spot he's the alternate and then Antonio Carlos Jr. tears his ACL and that's why he's fighting this fight another side note though in the musical chairs of mixed martial arts fighters Amari Akhmedov trains at ATT in Florida along with Josh Silveria and along with Antonio Carlos Jr. all three guys are teammates in the same gym kind of funny right Josh Silveria is 9-0 overall, undefeated, a favorite here at minus 170 on the main line, depending on what book you use. He's out of Coconut Creek, Florida, 29 years old, 6'1 in high with a 75-inch reach, and he trains out of the American top team. As for Armari Akhmedov, who goes by Wolverine, some nicknames are fitting, some aren't. This one is quite fitting. If you're seeing the topology photo, uh, yeah, Wolverine, that, that's, a, that's a good nickname. He's 23-7 and seven and 1 overall. Three and two in his last five fights. A dog here at plus 140, plus 150. Hailing out of Machkala, Dagestan, Russia. 34 years old. Six foot in height and 71 inch reach. Now, Dag Fighter is the prior gym. Obviously, he's now training out of American top team. He'll have a one inch reach disadvantage and a four inch reach disadvantage compared to Josh Silveria in this matchup. Now, looking at the numbers on Tapology, the public votes are coming in on the side of Silveria. I get it. I like Silveria too. But I'm going to caution everyone here. I liked Silveria before I even started looking at film. And of course, we know who Akhmedov is. He's been around for a little while, had a run in the UFC, whatnot. But when you start watching film again on Silveria, we have to acknowledge a few things. Both guys have fought complete, absolute trash cans in their last two fights. I'm not sure which guys have fought the worst two fighters in the last two fights. So we can't really determine too much. Silveria looked good against a washed-up Hamlet in his last fight. He looked good against the Muhammad guy, Juma, which we'll talk about that. 
But 78% of the votes coming in for Silveria, a guy who's only fought nine total mixed martial arts bouts against a guy in Akhmedov who had, like, what? He was in the UFC for almost nine years. Uh, won a handful of fights, had a winning record in the UFC. So I think we have to pump the brakes here. Now, as for Amarik Medov, as we mentioned before, he hails from Dagestan, Russia. No amateur experience. He went professional in 2010, so been a pro for about 12 years. He fought in the UFC for eight years, from 2013 to 2021. So my, my bad. Earlier I said it was six, seven years. Eight years in the UFC. He went nine, five, and one. He was let go in 2021. So just last year, he fought his last UFC fight against Brad Tavares. Lost the fight by split decision, so tough way to get cut there by the UFC. He comes into this fight on a two-fight winning streak, having won both of his PFL fights this year. His last opponent was Teodoris Oxtelis. I know I'm butchering that last name. I apologize. Look it up on Tapology. Teodoris. It was a round two submission win. Watch the fight. It, it's not that long. What you see in that fight is like the good, the bad, the ugly. Everything is more or less ugly on the side of Teodoris, who I question, should this guy even be in mixed martial arts? on any high level maybe not at all he's built like baby schwarzenegger the guy looks jacked and he seems to have you know some physical tools heck he even knocks down amarik met off of this fight and he knocks him down with like a simple jab which that in itself i was like oh my gosh red flags 33 year old fighter thir turning 34 amarik met been around for a while i'm like wait a second is he getting chinny now is he showing issues because theodore is just little simple you know jab that knocks down amarik met and when he knocks him down he kind of runs over, but like runs over, clumsy run over. It's just awkward. He comes over, he actually jumps on top, tries to engage with a Russian Dagestani guy on the ground. And you know what happens, right? He gets quickly reversed. And then he gets submitted via triangle, with arm triangle choke. Teodoros had a shot to do something. He could have done something. Didn't look amazing. Of course, the veteran, Akhmedov, takes Teodoros down in round one. He uses the ground attack. That's what he's good at. If he is forced to fight in the feet for all three rounds, and if he can land a big shot, a left hook, a leaning overhand right, I mean, very prototypical of those Dagestani guys, the first generation guys, the guys like Khabib, who do the big overhand wide looping shots to attempt to take down. And now if they land the shot, don't get me wrong, it's going to do some damage. They don't even see it. It's just, it's over the head. It's flying somewhere. He also does a hook that way, but it's a little bit tighter. But not all his shots are that way. I don't want to make it out to like he can't punch tactical strikes the right way. It's just that over the course of the fight, you'll see that from Akhmedov. Then he fights Victor Pesta. Well, Victor Pesta, just like Teodoros, has also lost both of his fights this year. And Pesta was finished in the first round of both of his fights. Knocked out, actually. Just had no damn business in there. Little side note, I love the PFL. Enjoy the entire format. This is probably one of the main underlying like little problem spots we're going to discuss in the offseason. How do we improve the quality of the bottom line? Because I get it. They need a warm body. But some of these fighters they've had this year, and it's not just here. Like even on the women's side, they had a few females that were just like, wow. I mean, how much did they pay this person to come over here and fight? Because they look like they're not qualified. In the case of Victor Pesta, yeah, I mean, he's just a body bag this year. Both fighters have not had the chance to get in the octagon in their last two fights and actually fight someone that's reasonable, someone to test them, someone to help them make little improvements in their game, someone for them to go back and watch the film and say, okay, here's where I made a mistake. No, they just fought complete cans. Now, going back a little further, last year, rest in peace to Jordan Young. Jordan Young fought Akhmedov last year, and I'm not sure the circumstances how Jordan, Jordan Young died, but he has passed away since then. So rest in peace to Mr. Young. Jordan Young did exactly what you need to do to beat Amarik Medov. Drag his ass to the third round and then start putting pressure on him. Force him to stand up, force him to fight with you. That's what Jordan Young does. And in 
Third round, Jordan Young knocks down Amari Akhmedov. Amari doesn't necessarily look like he's completely hurt. Yeah, he's kind of buzzed. Referee stops the fight. You see Akhmedov kind of like signal to the referee like, hey, man, I'm kind of like, I'm okay. Then puts his hand behind his back like, yeah, but I'm exhausted, dude. So it was a finish that was more because of exhaustion. And you see that in a handful of his fights. In the fight versus Brad Tavares where he loses by split decision. End of the fight, he's getting pieced up. He's barely there. He's getting very slow. Cardio is not his strong suit. He's also getting older. I think those are the big glaring issues for me when I'm talking about Akhmedov and why I think the younger fighter here, Silveria, has several opportunities to win the fight. But I think the best path for him is drag this fight to the third round. Do what Jordan Young did and then get aggressive. You know, try to win round one or round two in those two rounds. That's important too. But just force Akhmedov to fight for 15 minutes. If you do that, you'll see a slow version of Akhmedov in round three, a shell of himself. Round one, early on, he's going to wrestle, decent cardio, some part of round two, okay. But the attrition is there. He wears down. It's just part of the way he fights. And usually for him, he has to survive the last part of round three in order to get a decision win, if you catch my drift. He also fought Brad Tavares, we mentioned before. He fought him last year, 2021, lost by a split decision. And again, round three was getting just run through. Now, what's to like about Armarik Menoff, the Russian fighter, has a UFC experience, right? Has fought 14, 15 total fights in the UFC. You can't ignore that. He's fighting a guy here who's 9-0 who has obviously no UFC experience. So the experience advantage is clearly on the side of Akhmedov. He's also a very good grappler, a prototypical Dagestani grappler. Cardio becomes a problem when the cardio depletes. Now he can't grapple as well, but likes to grapple. will look for submissions. He throws heavy hands with a lot of power. Again, that diminishes too over the course of the fight, but early on, he'll look to throw with some power. He could definitely clip his opponent. If it lands, it's going to hurt somebody. Historically, he's not been a very good finisher, but his last few fights, he stepped it up a little bit. Matter of fact, his last three wins have all been by finish. Now, if you go before that, looking back a few fights before that, he went on a streak there where he went to decision in eight of nine fights. So it's like the tale of two different guys. If he's fighting a can, like the last two fights, for example, he'll finish them. If he's fighting someone who's a little bit tougher, it tends to go to decision. And again, the path to stopping this guy and making him you know, expose his weaknesses is dragging the fight out. I'm sure his father, who coaches him at ATT, who's there with him all the time, who also coaches in the same gym where you have Akhmedov, who knows Akhmedov, is telling his son, listen, you got to be on top of your cardio, drag this fight out, right? Now, for Akhmedov, he does train at the same gym, ATT. Very good gym, one of the top teams, top gyms, excuse me, in the world in Miami, Florida. He knows his opponent very well, too. So you can't say, well, Josh and his dad, they know Akhmedov. No, Akhmedov knows them just as well. They're in the same gym. And then when it comes to strength of schedule, obviously Akhmedov has fought much better competition than Silvera. Now, what are my concerns for Akhmedov? Well, at 34 years old, father time is around the corner. I believe he's already showing some of that. The knockdown in the last fight where the fighter hits him with a jab and knocks him down so easily, that to me was like, wow. I mean, was he off balance or whatever? I don't know. It wasn't a good look. He showed moments of fatigue in almost every one of the fights where it goes into round two, round three. He always shows a bit of fatigue. It's slow. That only gets worse as you get older. I think if this fight gets to round two, round three, you'll see that. He throws big off-balance punches. And when he gets tired, it gets even worse. Open for takedowns. And last but not least for Akhmedov, he is a bit one-dimensional, and I hate to say it about a guy who's been around for a long time, who's a very good fighter, but if he can't get his ground game going, if he can't get his ground attack moving, he becomes a guy who's forced to stand up, and that's just not his path to victory. Now, as for Josh Silvera, he's the son of the ATT head coach, Conan Silvera. 
He's fought a fairly easy schedule up to this point. It's pretty noticeable. When you look on his topology, other than the PFL, he's pretty much fought some pretty easy opponents. And then in the PFL, we'll talk about those opponents as well. They haven't been the toughest opponents either. He is 2-0 in the PFL, has been very dominant thus far. His last opponent, Martin Hamlet, won that fight by a TKO. That was earlier this year. And then prior fight, Muhammad Juma, that was part of the Challenger series. That was earlier this year. He got a round three submission win and, you know, shows you a few things. He's got good cardio. can go three rounds and also could get a submission. He looked great in the ground. Got the rear naked choke. Got the nice crank going. Finishes Juma. Juma didn't look very good. He wasn't good competition. And that's, again, my only indictment on both these guys. They haven't fought good opponents. They've been fighting guys that are just, you know, very conveniently not good. And I'm not saying the UFC, you know, I'm sorry, UFC. PFL is trying to pad their records. This is just who they have. They have some lower level guys. Now, what's the like about Severa? Very active. This will be his third fight this year. He fought four times last year, and he fought twice 2020. So the guy is fighting a lot. He's very active. A very nice kicking game. You know, at first when you look at him, he's, you know, average build, kind of thicker-ish guy, but uh, he's got good leg kicks, good head kicks, good body kicks. Uh, very flexible. So, yeah, he will have a kicking attack here. And, of course, he trains at one of the best gyms in the world um, at, Amer at ATT in Florida, where his dad's the head coach. That can't, that can't hurt. He fights in the southpaw stance, which we mentioned before. A very good wrestling attack. So he's a balanced fighter. He can wrestle on the ground. But we'll have to be careful here because Amariak Medov is obviously very efficient on the ground. Now, what are my concerns for Silvera? They're obvious ones. The lack of experience. Only nine total fights. This by far, no question, Nobody will even argue this. This will be his toughest test by far in his career. A guy who had former UFC experience, who has plenty of wins under his belt, you know, very good wrestler, good grappler. I think, again, the, the path of victory, though, for Silvera is to drag this veteran into round three. My other concerns for Silvera, he hasn't really been tested. We haven't seen him get cut, hurt, fight tough competition. A lot of question marks here. It's like Dana White contender series fights. There's a lot of blind spots. We can't put all the pieces together. We do know good gym, good pedigree. His dad's coaching there. All those things check out. He's done what he had to do this year in his PFL fights. But it's not as if the guy is like, you know, six foot three and has an amazing physical advantage. It's not as if he's has a belt from a lower level promotion like the LFA just has fought, you know, some good competition where we could compare more. He just fought two cans in the PFL. Amazing experience for him right now. I like the story. I mean, if the PFL can write the script into existence, they're going to have Silvera knock out the rush and finish him in exciting fashion, not because they don't like Akhmedov, but because the younger Silvera is like the future. He looks good. And, you know, they wouldn't want to lose him maybe to another organization. He looks good, right? Not sure if I'll play him straight up, but at minus 170, I mean, if the money line comes down more like minus 150, minus 140, then I might play him straight up. But at almost two to one odds, not a lot of value there. In conclusion, I have Josh Silvera winning the fight via round three TKO. And I went back and forth, round two, round three. I mean, Akhmedov's a veteran. He's got to have at least enough in the gas tank to get to round three. Once we get to round three, I believe Silvera exposes him, gets the best of him. And at minus 175, one of the better plays in the card. I like Silvera to win the fight. And that's your breakdown. And we are up to the main event for PFL number seven, the first round of the 2022 playoffs. It's going to feature a match between two former UFC fighters, Anthony Showtime Pettis and Stevie Braveheart Ray. Both good names, right? As for Pettis, we know him as the former UFC champion, been around for a long time. 
moved over to the PFL last year, and it's been a bit of a rough go of it. We'll talk more about his record in the PFL and what's been going on, but uh, another chance for him here to bring back the name. I'm pretty sure the PFL would love to see him win and move on to the playoffs and maybe even capture the $1 million prize. As for this fight here, we've got Stevie Ray sitting at 24-10 and 10 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A small favorite here at minus 130. He's out of Glasgow, Scotland, 32 years old, 5'10 in high with a 70-inch reach, and he trains out of higher-level mixed martial arts. As for Showtime Pettis, 25-13 and 13 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. Again, the recent fights, a bit of a rough stretch, a sort of a version of what we used to know of Anthony Pettis. He's definitely getting older, and you sort of see that in the way he's been fighting recently. He's a plus-120 underdog out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he trains out of Rufus Sport MMA Academy, 35 years old. 5 foot 10 in height with a 73-inch reach. So height-wise, the same 3-inch reach advantage there for Anthony Pettis. Now, looking at the numbers on Tapology, it appears that the public is almost split here. 60% of the votes coming in for Ray, 40% coming in for Pettis. It's always tough with Anthony Pettis because when you're picking him, when you're picking him, excuse me, to win, it's a lot of it's your heart, like the guy you used to know, the you know the guy that you remember, exciting, um, flair, you know, amazing shots off the cage, just doing things that are exciting, and obviously winning the UFC belt at some point. So you're always jaded from that standpoint. And for Stevie Ray, also had a UFC run as well, but not in the same light as Anthony Pettis, and obviously not a former UFC champion. I'm on Stevie Ray to win the fight. I think it's by decision. Now, if you don't know already, they just fought recently. I mean, they just fought 624, 24th of June, like not too long ago. So we have a recent fight between these two fighters that we could draw back some comparisons. I don't believe it goes the same way, though. I think we do see some differences in this fight. And of course, Anthony Pettis being a veteran should make some adjustments. Now, let's talk here about each fighter in particular, the profiles of each fighter. Let's start with Anthony Pettis. And I want to give him a moment here. I want to recognize Senor Pettis, and I want to give him a good profile breakdown and take a minute to discuss this. So if you want to fast forward here, you know all about Anthony Pettis, fast forward. But if you want to know more information about him, his background, some factoids that I uncovered, lock and load. Here we go. So Anthony Pettis, he was once destined to be Antonio Perez. You know that? Well, Anthony, of course, in Spanish is Antonio. He's Puerto Rican to Mexican. And his grandfather at one point changed his name from Perez to Pettis. That's how they got the name Pettis. His grandfather was looking to assimilate more in American culture and didn't want to deal with any discrimination. Anyway, Anthony Pettis is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he's still based out of. He began Taekwondo and boxing at the age of five years old, and he started training at Rufus Sport at the age of 18. The dude's 35. He spent almost half his life training out of that gym, Rufus Sport. He's a black belt in BJJ. He's also a black belt in Taekwondo, the former WEC lightweight champion the former GFS lightweight champion, and of course, the former UFC lightweight champion. He fought the UFC for nine years, 2011, 2020. He won two fights. He won his final two fights, I'm sorry, in the UFC, which is kind of rough. Like a guy like him, a legend, kind of, kind of, you would imagine the UFC would try to find a way to keep him. But nonetheless, he moved on. Maybe it was his choice. Maybe he decided, you know what? I'm getting paid a small amount of money in the, P in the UFC. I want to go to the PFL, win a million bucks. And hasn't been that easy, though. He's obviously earned fight of the night, knock of the night, submission of the night, performance of the night, all those awards being in the UFC. He's the only fighter ever to knock out Steven Thompson. That's a hell of an accolade. Steven Thompson's been around for a while. Good fighter. Now, some personal information about him. I don't know if you know, but as a teenager, he was 16 years old when his father was killed. His dad was at a friend's house, like just hanging out, just chilling, having a beer. And a home intruder came in and stabbed his father. And that's how his father passed away. 
Anthony Pettis is the co-owner of Rufus Sports. I'm not sure if you guys know that. He's the co-owner of that gym. And he's also the co-owner of a bar called Showtime Sports Bar. Obviously, Showtime Pettis. It's the same ownership group that, wrote, that owns Rufus Sports. Excuse me. So the guy has you know, moved on. Outside the cage, he's moved on financially. You love to see it. He received the Certificate of Achievement Award in 2013 from the governor of Wisconsin. Again, all these accolades outside the cage. I love it. It's hard to root against this guy. I just believe that Father Time has come to calling. And that's why his last fight, just about a month ago, he lost in the second round to Stevie Ray. It wasn't going good before that. It wasn't like a fluke, whatever got knocked out or flash knockout or just something fluky. He does get injured, yes. Some kind of a rib injury. But before that, it wasn't going his way. Stevie Ray was 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 pushing him against the fence, taking him down, controlling ground game pushing him back the entire time. If you know Anthony Pettis, he likes to fight off his back foot. He's a circular, good foot movement. That's fine. It's not fine in a close fight, though, when you need the judges to actually support you and you got Stevie Ray, like, in your face, pushing tempo. So in that fight, you saw Stevie Ray coming forward, a lot of confidence, and gets a twister win by submission. It wasn't a twister, guys. A twister is, like, look it up. A twister is a certain type of maneuver. It was just an injury to the rib. And if you know anything about Anthony Pettis, he's had some history of some random injuries. Now, his prior fight for Anthony Pettis, that is, he fought Miles Price earlier this year, got a round one triangle choke submission win. And in that moment, you're having that that little moment, that uh, moment of nostalgia. You're like, oh, there he is. There's Anthony Pettis, the Anthony Pettis of old. Well, Price is coming off of a three-year layoff, you see. And Price also lost his fight after that against a guy named Jerry, Jeremy Stevens. And Jeremy Stevens hadn't won a fight in like seven, eight fights, almost four years. So Miles Price, the triangle choke round one, that was the perfect opportunity for Anthony Pettis to give us a, a glimmer of what used to be. But Miles Price, by no means, is a good test right now in 2022. He lost last year to Roush Mountfield by decision as a minus 200 favorite. Looking back on that fight, you got two guys who don't push tempo at this point. Anthony Pettis is a warrior, former UFC champion, not taking anything away from him. But Anthony Pettis, like 2.50 or 3.0 and a half, the last version of Anthony Pettis, he's not trying to mix it up. So against a guy like Roush Mountfield, you got a boring fight where Mountfield drops Pettis twice in the third round. You know, Pettis just doesn't look very good. He's backing up, not engaging. He also lost against Clay Cotter last year as a minus 570 favorite. That was his first fight in the PFL, coming in as the you know former UFC darling. And right away, gets a loss. He's 1-3 in the PFL thus far. Now going way back for Pettis, a little bit of shine in his former, his past days. Decision loss to Nate Diaz, 2019. Decision win over Donald Cerrone, 2020. He had a broken hand stoppage against Tony Ferguson, 2018. A rib injury, rib injury, same injury kind of thing. 2017 in round three versus Dustin Poirier. He got knocked out by Max Holloway, 2016. He went over Clay Guida, Almost, I don't know how many years ago, 13 years ago. He beat Benson Henderson. He, I'm sorry, he fought Benson Henderson, had a round one submission win via armbar. And then last but not least, he fought Jim Miller in 2017, got a decision win. He also fought guys like Jorge Masvidal, Stephen Thompson, Michael Chiesa, and Charles Oliveira. Bottom line is, the guy is a veteran UFC Hall of Famer when he retires. Legit dude, inside the cage, outside the cage. I love him. Love him. Hard to root against him. And now what's the like about his striking style or his fighting game? 
first thing is he has championship level experience and not the kind of championship experience where it's like, well, he fought in championship fights. Like he actually had the belt in the UFC. Granted, it was a long time ago. It was the beginning years of the UFC, but still former UFC champion. He's very durable. If you take out the few random weird injuries, which obviously they did happen, he is pretty durable. You know, he goes a distance with some pretty tough guys. He's also a very balanced fighter. He's always been balanced. Amazing on the feet, good striking game. Well, not amazing, but good striker, flashy striker. Can knock you out. On the ground, nasty submission game. He has still both things. They've just both kind of regressed a bit. Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Senor Pettis or Mr. Perez, as he was going to be at one point in his life? He's been doing this for a long time. The wear and tear is real. Father Time's around the corner. You see him a version of him at times. But over the course of three rounds, if you force him to fight for 15 minutes, he's not looking to mix it up. He's looking to try to survive and get out of there. It makes sense. I think right now he has a lot more to look forward to out of the cage than to keep fighting. He's 5-7 and seven in his last 12 mixed martial arts fights. He's below 500 in his last 12 fights. So I'm giving you like a good big sample size. You know what I mean? He's also had a variety of injuries over the course of his career. And those injuries add up. Now, he bowed out of about on the 24th of June, just over a month and a week or so ago, from a rib injury, right? Against the same guy he's about to fight right now. If I'm Stevie Ray, I'm going to kick, punch, attack that rib area. I'm going to watch film and hone in on that simple little area where that injury is at. I'm going to go after it. You know what I mean? So from that standpoint, it doesn't bode well for him. Now, as for Stevie Ray, I'm going to give you a long breakdown of Stevie Ray. I'm going to save you some time here. The guy's a former UFC fighter. He won against Anthony Pettis' last fight, round two stoppage. Earlier this year, he lost against Alex Martinez, a little snake Martinez. I mean, that. I'm just trying to be funny. I like Martinez. But he's a snake in the scorecards. He gets wins like by the narrowest little margin. Going back further here for Stevie Ray, his last fight in the UFC was 2019, about three years ago, and he won by decision over Michael Johnson. Another fighter who won his last fight in the UFC but still got the... Aladdin. He has a handful of fights in the UFC. No big time wins outside of maybe Joe Lozon, Lauzon, the guy who owns the gym up in Boston. Otherwise, loss against Alan Patrick, Paul Felder, Cajun Johnson, Leonardo Santos. Had a bit of an okay UFC run. Was actually a guy who had like a 500 winning record in the UFC. Nonetheless, for Stevie Ray, if he could do the same thing he did last fight, the fight that just happened, <laughs> move forward, pressure and pace, he should get the win. I'm not sure it's by decision, though. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, by knockout, because he's more of a decision, decision guy. His last few fights had some wins by finish. For example, beat Anthony Pettis by finish, had a grappling bout, which he won by modified twister, which is what he's listed at winning the fight over Pettis on Tapology, which is, it was not a modified twister, but nonetheless, it's there. Um, but he's more of a decision guy. Like his last fight in the UFC, Michael Johnson won by decision. Prior to that, he beat Jesson Ayari by decision, Joe Lazon by decision, Ross Pearson by split decision. So not known as much of a finisher. I think Anthony Pettis can stay safer this fight, probably on his back foot, probably you know bicycle the whole time around the octagon, trying to disengage, where Stevie Ray is pushing forward, getting pressure. I see Stevie Ray getting some hard shots, maybe even cutting Anthony Pettis, not finishing him, but winning the fight by decision. Now, post-fight, I'm going to warn you right now. I see Anthony Pettis putting the gloves down and saying, that's it, guys. I appreciate you all. It's been a wonderful career. 
I've got this and this and this to look forward to. I think he's got kids. I believe he's probably married. He's got, you know, relatives, a whole life outside of fighting in the cage. It's time for him to move on and do that. I want to see him do that. Now, if he wins, keep it, keep it moving, dude. Win the whole thing. Win the $1 million prize. But if he loses against a guy, back-to-back fights, a guy who once was a UFC fighter like him too, but a guy who was below his level, but now here we are, twilight years, 35 years old, I think it'll be time for him to hang it up. On that note, I want to thank Anthony Pettis for all the years of excitement. If he does retire, we thank you. If he's not ready to retire and wants to fight longer, much respect to him. I just think he has nothing left to prove. He's done it all. And if he loses this fight against another good opponent, it's time to move on. That's our breakdown, guys. I like Stevie Ray here to win the fight at minus 130 range. It's a pick and price. If you like him as much as I do, there's a lot of value there. How aggressive will I be on betting it? You know, that's going to be, uh, we'll see. Track us online on Bet I mean, Tips on Twitter as well. But I'm looking to lean about a half unit here towards Stevie Ray to win the fight outright. Won't be parlaying anything. Looking for the fight to go over two and a half. The fight goes to distance. That's my thinking. That's our breakdown. Good luck with this one, guys. All right, just to wrap things up here for PFL number seven as part of the first round of the 2022 playoffs, I'm going to give you a summary of our picks to win each bout, give you the picks that we like the most, and give you two parlays you might want to consider. Again, this event is coming up this Friday, the 5th of August, with a 6 p.m. Eastern start time. And for those in the Northeast or next to New York City, it's being held in MSG, Madison Square Garden, in the Hulu Theater, right there in Manhattan, 6 p.m. Eastern start time, quite early for the New Yorkers. I mean, people get out of work at like five o'clock. Anyway, let's start from the top. Go to the main event. We like Stevie Ray to beat out the legendary Anthony Pettis at minus 130. We like Josh Silveria in the co-main event at minus 175 to beat Omari Akhmedov. Rob Wilkinson at minus 285. Olivier Aubameyang at minus 240. Moving on down to the prelim card, we like Marcelo Nunez fighting against Dylan Potter, but there's no money line available. Whatever it's going to be, it's probably going to be pretty chalky. Dylan Potter is a late replacement, five days notice, and Marcelo Nunes is 8-1 overall. Pretty looking prospect. Moving on down, we like Corey Hendricks at plus 135 to beat Martin Hamlet again. And then one more prelim bout is Mohamed Fauzi Sebi versus Itzo Babaliza. Liza, we didn't cover that fight because there's very little information. Not even sure if it's going to go off. We don't have any odds either, but I'm going to lean towards Sebi if the fight actually does happen. Now, the post-liminary bout... This will be after the main card, if you can imagine that. We like Alexei Pegran at minus 285, Elmar Umarov at minus 140, Corey Jackson has quite a big dog at plus 280, and then Brian Zercher at minus 365. Now, two parlays to just consider for you. Minus 175 for Silvera, minus 285 for Wilkinson, and minus 240 for Aubin Mercier. That three-leg parlay right there gives you plus 201 odds. Another parlay we like is plus 135 with Hendricks and minus 130 for Ray. That gives you plus 316 odds. Now, the picks that we like the most, the spots that we feel the most comfortable in, on the main card, Rob Wilkinson. I'd say a close second is probably Josh Silveria. I like this kid a lot, but he is still 9-0. You got Omari Akhmedov, who's a UFC veteran. That gives me a little bit of pause. And as for Olivier Aubameyang, I like him over Alex Martinez. We did the whole breakdown. It's just that every fight with these guys goes to decision. And so something could happen that could be outside of your control, put it that way. On the prelim card, I like Marcelo Nunez. I just don't know the number. <laughs> I couldn't tell you the number right now. Whoever he fights, though, he's the guy who was scheduled. Whoever he's fighting, like a guy like Dylan Potter, who's late replacement, he should win the fight. And then the post-liminary card, 
the after the main event card. I like Brian Zerker to win his fight. He's a big favorite though at minus 365. And then of course, Alexi Pergrand, the guy we interviewed a few months ago, young man, only 21 years old. He's fought one professional fight. He's 1-0. This will be his second fight. We like him here against Elvis LeBron Quilius, who's never fought a mixed martial arts fight. That's your full card breakdown for PFL number 7 coming up this Friday. Enjoy the card. Not sure if FanDuel offers it because I do have a FanDuel account. I didn't notice it up there on FanDuel, but it's been up on DraftKings already for a few days. So it's good that it's on DraftKings. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate you guys stopping by. Please give us a like and subscribe. Give us some feedback and good luck with this card if you're betting on it. Take care.